Welcome to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike, the artist and creator behind Not Sorry Art and Not Sorry Art School. I'm so excited to talk art and creativity with you. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let's dive in. Hey y'all, and welcome back to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari, and today's episode is all about style. How do you find your style? Is there some style catalog that everyone else knows about and I don't? Style cracks me up because it's one of those things people ask a lot about. And the thing that's, I think, funny about it is the answer, unfortunately, the best answer, the most authentic answer is kind of vague and people don't like that. So My short answer, and I think what is maybe the best go-to answer about style, is that if you just keep making art and you just keep showing up, that your style will emerge. And this is good advice because when you think about style, it's not just where you want to go, right? It's not just something that you, like I said at the top, a catalog that you thumb through and you find something you like, you point to it, and then you make that. Because Style is as much about your strengths and limitations as it is your interest and your curiosity. It's all of those things combined and that's how style sort of emerges. So the best way to find your style is by giving yourself more data points and data points, what is that? That's just more work. So whether that's little studies or big paintings or any kind of creative medium, really, I'm a painter, I'm going to use probably painting as an analogy here, but I think that this can apply to a lot of other different creative practices. In this episode, I'm hoping to break down what that looks like, share some tips with you guys about finding style. And good news is that the meat of this episode is really just giving yourself compassion and sort of reevaluating your own relationship with your weaknesses and The other bit of good news is that I think something that's pretty central to finding your style is playing and just enjoying your painting, enjoying your life, finding as much time to dedicate to things that just inspire happiness or whatever emotion you're trying to go for with your practice. That's what you should make time for. So if you're curious to hear more about what I have to say about finding your style, just stay tuned. I hope you guys like this episode. I hope you find it helpful and thanks for being here. So I'm going to start off this episode by talking about a blog post that I made last year that really inspired this podcast episode and it was called Finding Your Style Sandwich. And a style sandwich is basically just a way of conceptualizing how I think style is found and it's going to be kind of the base analogy that we're going to be working from in this episode all you need to know is that much like a sandwich an IRL jumbo sandwich you have all of these different components that make your style it's your interest your influences and then your strengths and your weaknesses and those cannot be teased apart they're all going to be present in your art as much as you try to hide your weaknesses they come out and as much as you try to play into your strengths it can't all just be about you showing off your strengths it can't just be you know color you have to invite form and other things into it I guess you can just do (laughs) a color square I mean there's exceptions to everything but by and large you're balancing a bunch of things hopefully you're calling references and inspirations into mind whenever you're making a piece of artwork Again, there's exceptions to everything. But generally speaking, all of those things are going to make their way into your artwork one way or another. 
just like all of those ingredients and components of a sandwich are going to be enjoyed exactly at the same time, if you have a well-constructed sandwich, of course. So we have the top and bottom bun of your sandwich, and those are the strengths and the weaknesses that an artist has. And they're part of every sandwich, just like your strengths and weaknesses are part of every single task you take on ever in life. And they provide structure and context and they hold the whole thing together. And of course, the inside is your inspiration, your influences, your medium, all the things that create what you do and give what you do its own flavor and depth and everything that's all put together that makes your art basically and the reason why I made the top and the bottom your strengths and weaknesses is because you know you can have your strengths on top but your weaknesses sometimes get overlooked and this is the part that I have to champion the most when I talk to people about finding their style and a sandwich wouldn't work without a strong held together base of its sandwich right you can do an open face sandwich but you cannot do a sandwich without a bottom arguably it's the most important thing in your sandwich and this totally holds up in the analogy because your weaknesses your mistakes your tendencies to make your values extremes to overblow your color to underpaint and scumble all of your brushwork, whatever you perceive as your weakness is likely the thing that you weren't aiming for when you learned how to paint, right? You learned how to paint or you learned your craft and you had these examples of these superstars and you had these clear examples of what successful art or successful paintings look like. And all of a sudden, when you put rubber to road, when you start painting, when you start at your craft, you notice that there's things that you can't seem to get a handle on and you sort of flag these as issues and that's okay I think important thing about being an artist is learning your weaknesses and sort of allowing yourself to evaluate is this something I want to improve is this something I'm okay living with that's a valuable part of the process but it's also important to know that to aim to just completely get rid of all of your your weaknesses is going to threaten the integrity of your sandwich Okay, I'll give you a more concrete example so that this doesn't sound like a fluffy platitude. So I remember whenever I started painting my first real big girl body of artwork outside of college, it was these large nocturne landscape, architectural landscape paintings. And I had a really good sense of color. So I would say color and maybe composition were the top bun of my sandwich. And I had all these other things going on and these inspirations. But I really struggled with how to apply paint and how to deal with blank, empty spaces. So like the smooth surface of a a pavement or the smooth surface of a wall. I found myself initially sort of vacillating between painting the wall or these blank spaces, just one solid color in this very graphic style, and then doing this sort of brushy thing when I didn't have the skill set to paint in detail, right? So like the corner of a building or like the windowsill where there was a lot of information I didn't have the skill to go in there and so by sort of choosing that I would take this brushy approach this was me doing the best I could I truly just did not have the skill to perfectly render what I was looking at but I just leaned in I chose that this brushy thing that I was doing I was just going to be consistent with it be confident in it despite the fact that in my mind it was fully a shortcoming and lo and behold I started showing this artwork online in person 
And one of the things that people loved about it was all this energetic brushwork and the way that I applied the luminosity around lights was really brushy and bright and bold. And I think that that was partially informed by good color choices, something I felt very good at and I think is a strength of mine. And combined with something that I would have told you was a weakness. In in fact, I had to fight the urge to tell people that I was just, I didn't know how to paint the details. And so I was just getting brushy. (laughs) Of course, with art, just take a compliment, right? I feel like that's a one very specific example of how that can look for an artist. Another argument for your weaknesses are that it's what's going to make you human. And again, I think arguing that your mistakes make you human can come off a bit like a platitude, but in the age of AI where we all have access or there is access and capacity for perfect, accurate renderings of paintings, you can plug into AI, you know, paint a tree in the style of this painter and you can have a Van Gogh tree made with your reference photo. In in an age where that's at our fingertips, Having something read as human and unique is more precious than ever before. Let's take another example in the photograph. So when the photograph came around, a lot of painters had been people who their job was a part of documentation. It was a more utilitarian thing. Illustrators, painters, anyone who was depicting something on two dimension because of the printing press and, you know, advertisements, like there were a lot of people working as painters and illustrators prior to the widespread use of photography. And photography was able to capture in perfect detail exactly what needed to be captured accurately so all of a sudden you would think overnight painting would be gone right it's no longer useful because truthfully most painting if we're just going by sheer numbers was just being used as you know a commercial tool or documentation and with the photograph now, you know, there's these absolutely picture perfect, exactly what all these documentarian painters or illustrators had been aiming for. All of a sudden, we have access to that through a snap of a camera. But we know that painting didn't go away. We know that painting is still alive and thriving. And there's an argument to be had that it's been unyoked from its need to be documentation. And now people who decide to pursue painting are free to do it for just the pure artistry of it, right? You know, you can still take a photo. Everyone has a camera in their pocket. There's really no need to paint if we think of it in the utilitarian sense. But what keeps painting around is the fact that people are going to paint imperfectly. That Alice Neal's wonky perspective adds to character and likeness to her portraits in a way that a camera could never capture. Okay, and one more example of this. I remember distinctly in one of my figure drawing classes, there was a student in our classroom who had a medical condition where her hands would shake. And so a way that she would sort of compensate this would be that she would press her Conte crayon or her charcoal very firmly into her paper. And she was a pretty good drafts person. You know, she was able to capture the form and the the scale and the dimensions relatively accurately for a figure drawing 101 student but her work was so unique and beautiful I remember during one of our critiques the professor said that it looked like all of her drawings were cast in stone and and bronze and it really did have this like deep 
dark, strong, like all the muscles were so highlighted because of all the contrast. And it was unique. And it's actually one of those pieces of like just college artwork that will pop into my mind from time to time. It was really impactful. I don't think she was an art major. I don't think she continued doing art, but her work was fantastic. And, you know, I think it's another example of something that could be considered a shortcoming or a weakness or, you know, anything like that, that if you have the confidence, if you can just allow it to be a component of your work, it doesn't mean you don't ever have to change it. If you want to change something, listen to your taste and your gut, but I want to free you from the idea that all of your shortcomings and weaknesses have to be remedied in order for you to be good at what you're doing. I would argue that the more kind of quirky and unique and shortcomings and whatever it is that you have are actually only going to add to what you're doing and give you more of that style. To be automatically sort of good at everything in the more conventional sense is kind of boring. And I mean, hopefully no one's getting their feelings hurt by that, but People who maybe don't have to work against anything like that, you know, they're not like me where they really have to work out their drawing all the time, are going to have a harder time, I think, you know, ever so slightly finding that style because they don't have as many things that are just super unique to how they see and interpret and create the world with their hands. Okay, so I'm hoping by this point in the podcast, you have started to warm up a little bit to your weaknesses and maybe given them a second glance in a new light and what I would ask you to do is maybe go on a walk or journal or whatever however you collect your thoughts take a shower <laughs> and really ask yourself when it comes to self-improvement in your craft where do you want to improve because it'll help you convey your message or it will help you find a style that you want And where do you want to improve? Because you think it's a perceived shortcoming or weakness, but actually you're totally fine with it or you could learn to be fine with it. I think it's important to distinguish those things. I have certainly found myself asking myself those same questions and I can tell you that they're really helpful. You know, as an artist, you're always giving, receiving input and feedback and I think it's important that we don't just blindly run away from what we think are mistakes and that we sort of learn to come to peace with them. Hey all, I just wanted to let you know that I'm hosting a painting retreat March 22nd through 27th in the beautiful Texas hill country of Wimberley, Texas. I'll be teaching my still life and landscape techniques as we relax on a 100-acre property situated 45 minutes away from downtown Austin. There are five unique lodging accommodations to choose from plus a drive-in option for local guests. We'll be enjoying chef-prepared meals, so every single meal of the day is already provided for you, and soak in all the inspiration that the beautiful property has to offer. And y'all, if you haven't been down to the Texas Hill Country, it is so stunning. All the locals vacation out there it's a lot of beauty and nature and hopefully we're going to be super inspired by that as we learn plein air painting and lots of other great technique so sign up today by heading over to my website sari.studio and clicking the texas painting retreat tab i hope to see you there it's going to be a blast so this brings me to the second part of the podcast we're going to talk a little bit more about a process that i would recommend for helping someone to find or hone or re-examine their creative style. So we're going to talk a little bit about the left and right side of your brain. I know from reading books on dyslexia that there is some legitimate science to this concept, but I've only sort of ever used it in this pop culture sense of it. So if there are any (laughs) 
neuroscientist, anyone who studies the brain for a living listening, please just know I'm using this in a pop culture sense of it. So the idea is that you have the left hemisphere of your brain, which controls analytical thinking and language processing and certain parts of math. And that we have the right side of our brain that sort of helps us process big picture things, more emotional things, things that require less analytical skill. And one thing I've noticed from both my own experience and helping students is when people try to start honing in their style and they want to find it, we sometimes take a consumerist sort of approach And this totally makes sense. We live in a very consumer-based society. We're making specific brand choices, even when it comes to something like buying your cereal or buying your shoes or your jacket or what kind of water bottle you drink. All of those things do help us craft an identity because marketers have put a lot of creative energy into creating a brand and ideology. When you look at a Stanley cup, you're going to think of a kind of person. When you look at a hydro flask, you're going to think of a kind of person. And that's all very intentional. That was the fruit of somebody's creative labor. But if the only way we've learned to sort of express ourselves is through this consumerist lens, whenever we begin to do a more from scratch creative process, which is a creative practice, painting, writing, whatever it is, it's going to be harder for us, I think, to not come at that as a consumer. And I think in a lot of ways, people assume that there's this great big style catalog and that you sort of pick and choose and piece together a style that way. And maybe that can be done. Again, there's exceptions to all of this, but that's only a small portion of how this works. I would say maybe the only part of finding your style that really looks kind of like this consumer way of curation that we've all experienced is going to be finding people who inspire us and collecting maybe a roster of artists who we really enjoy. But I would even argue that amongst that roster of artists or artisans or craftspeople or brands or whatever that we really are creatively inspired by, that only maybe half of that is going to make its way into our art in a meaningful way. That is to say, you can enjoy someone's artwork and have absolutely no desire to paint like them or to draw like them or to write like them. The rest of finding your style is going to be a lot more intuitive and a lot more play-based. So looking through a catalog and picking out the people who inspire you, I think of as generally a left brain activity, not entirely, not entirely one or the other, but it's more analytical, right? You're sort of thinking of creating style like you're Frankensteining this person's color palette with that person's subject matter. And again, I suppose you could go that way, but I found that you have to deal with a lot of your own intuition and gut instinct more. And even if you tried to Frankenstein a style together in that consumerist sort of way, your own tendencies and strengths and weaknesses and influences from other places are going to find their way into your artwork. So to kind of go back to our analogy just for a brief moment, you can pick out all the ingredients you want, but if it's a sandwich, it's going to have a, a top and a bottom to it. So here is my advice when it comes to how to integrate more of that right brain thinking into your style. And it starts with thinking less. Okay. No, you can't turn your brain off, but I would say less analytical thinking, right? A lot of coming up with a style is putting in the work and then looking back and then sort of engaging the analytical part of our brain. So if you're an overthinker, maybe use this as a piece of advice that really recommends turning off 
the overthinking perfectionist perfectly curating part of your brain and really lean into step two which is to create consistently now I know creating consistently isn't always possible for everyone and it's not to say that if you are a slow painter that you are not going to be able to find your style but if we can think about finished work and that can be studies it can be drawings it can be collages or mock-ups it doesn't have to be all finished big juicy finished pieces of work right but the more you can make the more data points you have and the quicker and faster you can rack up data points the quicker you can come to conclusions. So call for compassion here. If you are a slower painter, if you don't have a lot of time, give yourself some space and empathy that you may not be able to really hone your style for a while, and that's okay. You don't have to come out of the gates with a solid style. Now, certainly some people do. I, in my opinion, think it's the minority that usually style comes together over time and through influences and trial and error. At least that's certainly the case for me and what I've seen with a lot of my students. But another reason I think it's important to look at all of your work as data points is because it can sort of inform you where you're going and then it gives you the power to choose. Well, do I want to continue? Do I want my drawings to be a little wonky and sort of have an Alice Neal feel? Or would I like to call in that more accurate classical drawing style so that I can make points in other directions? Do I like that whenever my colors look like this, that I'm always getting people to say that it looks like the fauve artist. Is that something I want? Is that a direction I want to go with my color? Or do I need to do some limited palette studies to sort of hone that? So I don't want everyone to feel like you're out of control of your style. If there's something about what you do that you don't like, you can by all means fix it. I certainly have done that. But it's less shaped out of this desire to not make mistakes and more out of a desire to be sort of a little bit in control of where I'm going right so we're thinking of it like you have this wild hedge and it's growing and you're not really choosing how it grows you're just sort of refining and pruning and hopefully it sort of shapes it but you're not in control of it you're just sort of refining pruning landscaping if you will this wild bush of style so so far we have think less or be less analytical at least in the moment and then, of course, a call for creating more consistently, so more data points. And then the final element is to play more. Maybe this sounds obvious, but as an artist, it's important to know what you like and to be really in touch with things that excite you. I have kids, I have young kids, and so part of me as a mom, I spend my entire day sort of applying logic to their randomness and their behaviors and it's so lovely and kind of refreshing that both of my children are largely motivated by doing whatever is fun and feels good and is exciting and it's so crazy to me because children are so motivated by joy and excitement and curiosity and then we go through school we get real jobs we have big life responsibilities and by the time you're a 20-something aspiring artist a lot of times people can become really detached from what is it that you like what is it that you're curious about what could you sit down and read about for hours what do you look at and like a little piece of your heart lights up and again I know this is going to sound like hokey pokey platitudes but 
I have a whole creative business. I'm a very prolific painter. I do art shows. It's a real deal thing. My husband works for me. It's this real thing, right? And it is completely driven and steered by whatever I think is fun and interesting. Now, certainly I still have to work and do admin and I have goals like wanting to help other people. But by and large, I wake up and whenever I think about the future or plan what I'm doing, it's driven by what I would like to learn about and what I'm curious about and what sounds fun and exciting and what looks rewarding. And so there's a little bit of my day that kind of looks like what my children's day looks like. So what does play look like implemented? Well, it's a variety of things and it's going to be super unique, just like each child plays in a different and unique way. Every grown-up is going to have a different criteria of what is enjoyable and interesting and curious. And I want to make the distinction that it's not just short-term pleasure, although certainly if you can do it, allow time for a good Netflix binge and a potato day where you just hang out on your couch and do nothing. Like those are valuable as like taking care of a human tasks. But what I mean in the sense of curiosity is tasks that maybe to other people don't seem particularly fun or exciting. It's not like unplugging in a more universal sense, but sitting down with an atlas for a day and a half and just looking at the geography of Ireland, you know, like if that sounds fun to you, that's not how everyone unwinds. That might be a really helpful part of your style puzzle, of your art puzzle, of what you need to do, what you need to put your energy into. Another example of this is something that I learned in college, and I'm so glad that I was introduced to this idea young because I've done it my whole life now, and it has been so valuable as an artist. But when I was in college, my painting professor encouraged us to, whenever we saw something really visually exciting, we're painters, so if this doesn't have to be visually exciting, if you're a musician, this applies to music, etc. But when you find something sort of in your language that's really just it, it makes you stop and stare at it hold on to it and so for him he had this picture of a volkswagen beetle but it was made in cast iron and it was like i think italian looking and it was very floral-esque but it was cast in iron and he took it out of a magazine i think he saw it in a magazine and he kept it in a folder and he had a bunch of other illustrations that were exciting to him and the thing is when you're excited by it it doesn't have to make sense with your artwork right we're going back to that left brain right brain thinking something on that subconscious instinctive intuitive side of your brain says "Ooh, that's amazing listen to that okay I, I know it seems like obvious maybe but because of how much responsibility most of us have in our day we've all sort of become a little numb to the things that excite us because we have to go pick up the kids or we have to take care of our parents or we have to you know work that extra job so that we can pay for our bills or you know what whatever realistic things get in the way of us having fun and playing it's important to try as an artist to tap back into it I would argue as a human but there is a practical and beneficial outcome to collecting all those images. Some things that I've collected along the way are those little tiny pictures of different hairstyles from hair magazines that you used to get when you went to the hair salon. I have a bunch of those from like bridal hair and they're all like kind of dated from like the 90s or early 2000s. I have a bunch of Lisa Frank images that I've collected and like sticker packs more specifically. I have a couple of movies that are really, really influential. And if I want to really get inspired creatively, I sit down and watch them. One of those is The Florida Project. 
I won't go into all the details, but looking at my list, it's about 50 things that over my life have just really jumped out at me. And I know on various Pinterest pages and saved my phone, I have paintings from other people that have become so inspirational to me that I, I go back and look at them. And it can be sources from anywhere. It doesn't have to just be art. It can be quotes. But anything that really excites you or makes you curious in a way that feels huge, (laughs) hold on to and keep because those might be clues or little arrows on your path of where you should be going with your artwork. Oh, and the last thing I'll say about that is in regards to my painting professor, he collected that Volkswagen illustration or photo piece of art when he was a lot younger and then when he was quite a bit older he ended up having a body of work that very much heavily pulled from that and he didn't put that together that that's what he was drawing inspiration from until way later so a lot of this stuff happens in your subconscious right it's not the left part of your brain the analytical part of your brain piecing together a collage so to speak it's more that things just feel right your gut instinct tells you to draw something or to to illustrate something or to include this color or this palette or you know whatever it is whatever it looks like for you and it's only when you look backwards does that more analytical part of your brain start to piece it together and go oh that's what you were inspired by no wonder you drew it like this no wonder you included those vintage illustrations no wonder you xyz Okay, so hopefully with the style sandwich, you're a little bit more at peace with your mistakes and you know that they're a valuable part of what makes you unique and maybe you've become a little bit kinder to yourself and your shortcomings. That's my hope anyways. And then with my think less, create consistently and play more framework, hopefully you have learned to do legwork in other areas. So instead of just analyzing and try to stitch a style together using the more analytical part of your brain, you have more of a reason to be kind to yourself, to play more, and to carve out more time to make more data points. And the last thing I would say is not to abandon your analytical part of your brain. Rather, to use that to work on your artist statement. And I do think it's important that you're having conversations with yourself about what is my style? Where am I drawn to? How does this all make sense? I will say you will probably never come to a solid conclusion. At least I know I haven't and most artists I've worked with have never fully finished an artist statement in the sense that they're 100% happy with it and it all makes sense. I think to be an artist is to be on a journey and to be in quest. And maybe your best artist statement will happen after you stop making art, you know, whatever that looks like for you. But when you're in the process, things will always seem unanswered and unfinished. And that's totally okay. There's nothing wrong with that. When you write your artist statement, just use it as a time to reflect and look back. And for me, I know my artist statement practice is a constant rewrite, ever evolving sort of situation. But in that process, it's really helped me to illuminate things that I'm interested in and help me to gain a better way of talking about my style. And I think that's helped me in my own practice. So I hope that this was helpful. I'm wanting you to be more at peace with finding style and it's okay if it doesn't make sense right away as long as you're being kind to yourself and you're playing and you're listening to what excites you and you keep making artwork. I promise it'll all come together. You just have to take my word for it. And definitely don't just sit around and wait for style to come find you. Has that happened? I'm sure in history that that's happened like that. But by and large, just start making 
Start with studies, start with something super easy, paint flowers, paint apples, start small, don't overthink it and allow your strengths and weaknesses to emerge and allow your interest to slowly shape your subject and your style and your medium and just watch, watch your journey. It's fun to see an artist find their footing. It can be frustrating when you are that artist, I know, but enjoy the ride. Being an artist is really fun and thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for being here and happy creating. Today's episode, like all episodes, are sponsored by Not Sorry Art School. Not Sorry Art School is my online art school that I created with all kinds of artists in mind, from people who've never picked up a paintbrush to mid and upper level career artists. There's something for everyone. It's self-led, which means that you can do it at your own pace. We add four new sections a year. That's one a quarter where we expand on our curriculum. We have everything from the foundations of how to paint all the way to how to paint water, portrait painting, greenhouse painting. We have two master studies, a Frida Kahlo and a David Hockney. Right now in the Facebook group, we're deciding who our third master study is going to be it's a very interactive experience so if you're curious about not sorry art school i encourage you to check out my website to learn more and as always thank you for listening and happy creating and of course i want to thank all of the people who took a time to write a review i appreciate your feedback so much and it really does help small growing channels like the not sorry art podcast so i wanted to say a huge thank you to hey jamies that's at h-e-y-j a-I-M-E-S thank you to Abby Hersey that's H-E-R-S-E-Y thank you to Sarah with an H thank you Marissa 865 thank you to at Chloe Tori Art that's C-H-L-O-E T-O-R-R-I Art thank you Jen Wallace Collins Art that's at J-E-N-N-W-A-L-L-A-C-E-C-O-L-L-I-N-S art. And thank you to Elise Joinkin. That's E-L-Y-S-E-J-O-K-I-N-E-N. Again, huge thank you. And if you would like to hear your name or handle read off at next week's episode, just make sure to leave a review. Let me know how I'm doing. Thank you again.